Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we focus on the intersection between caregiving and poverty. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, the U.S. government has been distributing checks to people in order to stop the economy from collapsing. However, it still refuses to consider providing an income for unpaid family caregivers whose work is generally depended on and has increased as a result of the pandemic. Family unwaged caregivers, most of whom are women, including mothers and grandmothers, as well as the most impoverished women, those on welfare, provide care for relatives, children, the elderly, and people with disabilities. Amid this crisis, they're expected to pick up the slack without any acknowledgement of the value or resources for their work. The International Labor Office has estimated that women do two-thirds of the world's work for 5% of the income. And according to a report released by Oxfam in January 2020, Women around the world perform 12.5 billion hours of unpaid labor each and every day. Overall, the work of unwaged caregivers has been estimated to contribute at least $11 trillion to the global economy, according to a human development report. Meanwhile, across the United States, over 2 million women are jailed each and every year, according to the Prison Policy Initiative. At least 80% of the women who are imprisoned annually are mothers, including nearly 150,000 women who are pregnant when they're admitted. Many of these women are impoverished and have been forced um, into crimes of poverty just to survive. As a result, Oftentimes, their children are forced into foster care and adoption, where they also face criminalization and abuse. Because of systemic poverty, caregivers, mothers, and children are not only unvalued, but they are forcibly separated and criminalized. Today, we bring you audio from a recent Truth Commission webinar organized by the National Welfare Rights Union entitled, Poverty in all its forms is violence. Caregivers victimized by poverty speak out. During today's program, you will hear from a multiracial panel of mothers and other caregivers sharing their experiences of living in poverty. Furthermore, you will hear insight as to how all of this is connected uh, to poverty and systemic racism, the war economy, and the violence and oppression of the market-focused economy. Lastly, our speakers discuss how they have come together with others to fight back in their own defense. The event was convened by the National Welfare Rights Union, an organization of, by, and for the poor in the United States, and it follows on the heels and builds on the National Welfare Rights Organization.
We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari, a Minneapolis firefighter who wept as she recounted how a police officer prevented her from helping George Floyd, is set to resume her testimony in the trial of fired police officer Derek Chauvin, charged with murder and manslaughter in Floyd's death. Genevieve Hansen said she came upon the scene while out on a walk last Memorial Day. Hansen said she immediately recognized Floyd needed medical help, but another officer rejected her offer to help. He said something along the lines of, if you really are a Minneapolis um, firefighter, you would know better than to get involved. Earlier, the teenager who shot the widely seen video of George Floyd under Chauvin's knee testified she began recording because it wasn't right. He was suffering. He was in pain. I heard George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, please get off of me. I can't breathe. He he cried for his mom. He was in pain. It seemed like he knew. It seemed like he knew it was over for him. He was terrified. He was suffering. This was a cry for help. 18-year-old Darnella Fraser was the first witness on the scene. She and her young cousin had gone to the corner store for snacks. President Biden travels to Pittsburgh today to unveil his $2 trillion infrastructure plan. There's $115 billion to rebuild and modernize bridges, highways, and roads that in some cases are unsafe. $111 billion to replace lead water pipes and upgrade sewer systems. $100 billion to build high-speed broadband, providing 100% coverage for the country. Another $100 billion to upgrade the power grid and move to clean electricity, among other power projects. More than $200 billion to produce, preserve, and retrofit more than 2 million affordable houses and buildings. $100 billion to upgrade and build new schools and much more, including funding for public transportation and railways. The infrastructure plan would create millions of jobs. It would be funded by higher corporate taxes, partially reversing the 2017 Republican tax breaks for corporations and the wealthy. More from Mary Sherman. With the federal stimulus package now in the rear view, the president is turning to the nation's aging infrastructure. In Pittsburgh today, he'll detail a plan to repair roads, bridges, and railways. Press Secretary Jen Psaki says it's about building an infrastructure of the future. Some of it is certainly infrastructure shovel-ready projects. Some of it is how do we expand broadband access. Some of it is ensuring that we are addressing uh, the needs in people's homes and communities. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg helped announce a Virginia Amtrak rail expansion project funded in part by the federal stimulus. The $1.7 billion included in the package will help bring back furloughed workers and restore service. Far too many workers have been worrying not only about their safety, but about the safety of their job, about their next paycheck. And too many passengers have had occasion to worry about how they could get to work. It also provided $30 billion in transit funding to avoid cuts. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. 
Pfizer says a trial with more than 2,200 kids between the ages of 12 and 15 demonstrated its COVID-19 vaccine is safe and strongly protective for that age group. The announcement marks a step toward possibly beginning shots for children as young as 12 before the next school year. Researchers reported high levels of virus-fighting antibodies, somewhat higher than were seen in studies of young adults. Kids had side effects similar to young adults, including pain, fever, chills, and fatigue, particularly after the second dose. Pfizer gave the 12 and older participants the same dose adults receive. It is testing different doses in younger children. It's not clear how quickly the FDA would act on Pfizer's request to allow vaccinations starting at age 12. The leaders of all three branches of Brazil's armed forces have jointly resigned following President Jair Bolsonaro's replacement of the defense minister. Bolsonaro is a conservative former army captain who has often praised Brazil's former period of military dictatorship. He has relied heavily on current and former soldiers to staff key cabinet positions since taking office in January of 2019. The coronavirus pandemic is raging out of control in Brazil. That country's health ministry reported a new daily high of 3,780 deaths in the latest 24-hour reporting period. People 21 and older in Virginia could legally possess and grow small amounts of marijuana beginning in July under changes the governor is proposing to legislation the General Assembly passed this year. That's about three years faster than the original legislation, Racial justice advocates have called on the governor to speed up the timeline for legalization. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and those were our news headlines. Now we kick off our Sojourner Truth special on caregivers speaking out against poverty. During today's program, you will hear exclusive audio from a recent webinar entitled Poverty in All Its Forms is Violence, Caregivers Victimized by Poverty Speak Out. The event was convened by the National Welfare Rights Union and featured a multiracial panel of mothers and other caregivers sharing their experiences of living in poverty and how they have been fighting back. I'm Michelle Tingling Clemens. I'm a founding member of the National Welfare Rights Union. I come there from the National Anti-Hunger Coalition. And since then, I've become the co-convener of Great Panthers in Metropolitan Washington. And I work in the area of hunger and public health care, fighting for both for all. So with no further ado, I want to introduce you to the president of Michigan Welfare Rights Organization, the eminent Maureen Taylor, otherwise known popularly as Miss Mo, both for the lessons, the, the, the poignant lessons that she delivers and the fierceness with which she fights for our liberation. Uh, Maureen Taylor is from Detroit, Michigan, and she is an able representative of, that, of the Motor City. Take it away, Maureen. And thank you so very much uh, to uh, my colleagues that have already uh, started this program off with a bang. Uh, Back in 1966 in Syracuse, New York, a number of activists, organizers, welfare recipients came together in New York. Uh, A call went out across the nation, and one of the names that uh, was involved in that organizing drive-by is, uh, uh, I don't want to say (laughs) drive-by, in that organizing drive, is a guy by the name of George Wiley. 
And uh, some of you may be aware of uh, a lady by the name of uh, Maya Wiley, uh, who's a contributor to MSNBC. And uh, that's his daughter. Well, George and other folks called uh, individuals from across the country together. And the focus was, what can we do? What should we be doing around the horrible uh, ways that welfare recipients were being treated? And in that conversation, the breakout discussions, of course, uh, went to what are we going to do around poverty? And the breakout discussions there went to, uh, like what Michelle has mentioned, we've got too many people that are hungry. We've got too many people that are homeless. We have too many people that are not able to keep body and soul together. And we're talking about primarily women and children, men and children. And what is it? Uh, from the voices of the oppressed and the dispossessed, what can we do? Well, that grouping of people, for however long uh, they had that uh, conference in Syracuse, when they left there, the birth of a welfare rights voice was started to uh, uh, be lifted. Uh, we come from a generation of fighters. Uh, one of the particular fighters uh, Ms. Johnny Tillman raised this question of let us pay attention to the voices of the victims, the voices of the victims. They can tell you what their issues are better than anyone else. And she was absolutely correct. So with that model, the voices of uh, the uh, victims of poverty, uh, it was so many of those early people that took that theory and said, how can we lift? the voices of uh, the actual victims of poverty. And as you all know, uh, poor people always assume that they're the most backwards. They assume that they're the most unintelligent. They feel that they're the most unable to talk about the problems that they have. So there was immediately, I wasn't involved at that time, but there was an immediate push to make certain that the victims of poverty were pushed to the forefront and getting prepared and training themselves and training others to be the spokespersons of the kinds of lives and the kinds of circumstances that they were having to live through. So the history of welfare rights is grounded in that fight against poverty, grounded in that fight to try to become experts and visionaries and poverty scholars around this question of class. What does that mean to be in a working class? Uh, we, we, as you go forward uh, from 66 to 76 and 86 and 96 and the different uh, groupings that were part of welfare rights in different parts of the country. Certainly the regional areas had a lot to uh, produce. Uh, my colleagues that uh, have already spoken, um, uh, Michelle and Rick, uh, that come from the D.C. area, as long as I've known them, have been trying to get Washington, D.C. to be a state in the union. And that battle continues. Uh, my colleague, uh, Margaret, out on the uh, West Coast, as long as I've known her, trying to get these caretakers on board and able to speak and pushed up front. This has been our life's work. Viola's on this call from New Orleans, as long as I've known her. It's been that kind of battle 
to raise the voices of the victims of poverty. And we've done an outstanding job. And that's how we got Carolyn. Uh, and we found her along the way to raise the voice of youth and how this country has a debt to pay. You know, we're tired of these uh, checks being written, like Dr. King used to say, and you get those checks back and they say insufficient funds. So as we present a bevy, a plethora, see how we learn all those big words? We got a bevy, a plethora of information that we are going to present over the next 90 uh, minutes or so, so that lived experiences can be used. Uh, the Truth Commission is a tool that welfare rights uses in an effort to push forward the actual voices of the victims of poverty. And we've got an array of voices that are going to make their presentations known and discuss what's, what's a paramount. And here's another big word, sailing it to the victims of poverty and how we can go forward. My name is Maureen Taylor. I am state chairperson of the National Welfare Rights Organization, and uh, uh, I will step back so that the next part of this presentation can go forward. Thank you for your attention. Hi, my name is Kathy Klein, and I am a mother with a disability, and I want to share my experience being homeless and dealing with child welfare system. I was sick, hospitalized, and unable to pay my rent and became homeless. My 13-year-old son and I had nowhere to live. So we went to the downtown shelter for women and children for assistance, begging them to house me and my son. And still, instead of um, providing us with emergency shelter, they call L.A. Department Children and Family Service placed us with a church up in Oshnot. I was sent to the women's um, home and my son was sent to the youth home. We only saw each other only on Sunday afternoon at the church. The church required mothers, mothers to sell candy eight hours every morning until eight o'clock at night to um, able them to stay in the shelter. The church used the fundraising to pay mortgages. As I refused to sell candy, I was given the job to watch the kids at the shelter. One day they wanted me to join selling candy. I went along and took a bus back to LA. I was, I went back to the uh, welfare office, social, social worker to get help to bring my son back with me. But all of a sudden, he had to stay up there and they put him in a foster home. I had to come back and forth up there to um, go to court in Arsenal to get my son. But DF, DCFS never offered me any help. So the police went and got my son. Um, I didn't have funds to go to get him because I was down in L.A. 
So after a while, I had to go back up there for court. So I decided to return to L.A. finally to receive help at a adult union shelter in Pasadena. They, get, they had um, got me housing. I had a two-bedroom apartment for me and my son. But having a two-bedroom apartment wasn't enough for the um, Ventura County Child Protective Services. Why are resources fund to pay for children court for foster care, but not to keep families together? Bus fear and help with housing. And I'm, I'm down here in L.A., and my son is up there in Austin, so I had to go back and forth up there for six months. And this went on for four years, for six months. And I was glad to um, dispute this system set up for you to fail. Well, the system is set up for you to fail. Because they really failed me. They didn't even help me when I was up there in Austin. And um, they was telling me that I, I lived, I had so many places that I had lived here, there, and everywhere. And I told them, I said, well, I only moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. So wherever you think that I've been all over the world at living is not true. That's what you guys are saying. Hi, I'm Marie Fitzpatrick from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I first went on Medicaid when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter. I was receiving my prenatal care at a city public health center, and the social worker referred me to both Medicaid and the WIC program. After I stopped working, I applied for welfare as well. Because I was living with my daughter's father, I was not eligible for food stamps because we shared a kitchen. I met women from the Wages for Housework campaign when Danielle was six months old. I started working with them on having women's unwaged caring work recognized and counted in the GDP, the gross domestic product, and dignified with a wage. After my second daughter was born, I was harassed by my caseworker, who insisted that I was in a common law marriage, even though I used my own name, filed my own tax return, and gave my children my last name. A welfare investigator made a credit inquiry using my first name and Daryl's last name and created an alias with the credit bureau, which still shows up today as an alias on my credit report. He tried to use that as proof that Daryl was my husband. I explained that because I was not married to Daryl, his health insurance did not cover me and I needed medical assistance. I also needed the $200 per month cash assistance to have some money of my own, since I wanted to breastfeed and take care of my own children. And welfare was the only wage for housework that we had in the U.S. Because I was still breastfeeding my youngest daughter, who was a toddler, the nutritionist at my WIC office recommended me for a breastfeeding counselor training course to become a WIC peer counselor. I became an enthusiastic breastfeeding advocate and encourage pregnant women to consider breastfeeding when they came in for their WIC appointments. 
since two of the WIC offices were in local hospitals, a lactation consultant who was a nurse mentored me, and I also got to visit WIC clients on the postpartum floor and help them initiate breastfeeding with proper positioning. I love the work, but found it to be frustrating that so many women would tell me that they couldn't even start breastfeeding because they had to return to work within two to six weeks. And the jobs they were returning to at Walmart or McDonald's would allow no time or space for them to pump their milk. There was no welfare program that most women could afford to live on to be able to stay at home with their babies and breastfeed. The U.S. has no paid maternity leave that nearly every other country in the world has because we devote so much money to the war budget. When federal funding was cut from the peer counselor program, I was laid off. I started subbing as an instructional assistant for special needs children for the Lower Merion School District. As a sub, I received no employee benefits and qualified for medical assistance and food stamps since my daughter's father had moved to Hawaii. My daughters are now grown and on their own. I now receive Medicare with extra help from the state to pay the Medicare premium each month. I also receive Social Security retirement benefits. I qualify for the minimum food stamps for a household of one, which has been enhanced during the COVID pandemic. Thank you. Uh, My name is Alex, and I am a biracial gender fluid person born and raised in San Francisco. Um, I was when I was a teenager, I became involved in the underground street economy shortly after I started middle school when my parents had divorced. Um, My mother became a single mom. Eventually, my mother lost her job and we struggled with poverty. I ran away when I was 14 and I started to sell drugs to support myself. I was not able to get a legal job because I was underage and most of my friends um, who could work did not make enough money for all of us to survive. So we sold drugs to help supplement the cost of living. Many of my peers were criminalized and incarcerated for trying to survive by making money any way they could. When I was 19, I was arrested and convicted of several misdemeanors. When I got out of jail, as a part of the terms of my probation, I joined many youth employment programs, and I tried my best to support myself through non-criminalized legal work um, in, in food and service. Um, Regardless of all the hard work I put in with these jobs, I still needed to sell drugs on the side to help pay my bills. Despite my skills and ambition, having a criminal background encouraged many employer encourages many employers to still not hire me. So I've been over and underlooked when applying to better paying jobs. At one point, I found a job that hired me without prejudice of my status as a formerly incarcerated person, and they even offered me full time employment with healthy benefits. Uh, When I lost that job and uh, I suddenly lost my health insurance and found myself ineligible to receive unemployment, what seemed like a luxury of not having been discriminated against for my record at this job did not follow me into the new search for employment. I got back into the underground economy, but this time I was returning as a sex worker. In that moment, sex work offered me better paying employment than other hustles I had done. And I only picked up one part-time gig on the side to supplement. 
I came to a realization that no matter where I worked, I was going to have to work more than one job to survive. I found that working as a prostitute gave me an option to stick to just two gigs rather than three or four gigs to survive. Shortly after I began sex work, Trump became president and a law passed um, that pushed criminalization of sex work online um, even deeper. Um, And the sites that I was using to advertise on were being shut down and censored. This made my work environment much more dangerous um, by pushing more sex workers onto the streets, making us even more vulnerable to violence. Women of color are more likely to work on the streets, making us the visible targets for arrest and harassment. When we are arrested for trying to survive, it creates and or adds a record um, that further hinders our chances at finding other employment, trapping us in poverty and prostitution. Many of the women I work with are mothers pushed into sex work to help support their families. This country's system is not set up for young, brown, queer, poor, formerly incarcerated, sex-working people, and countless others to thrive or survive in. All of these identities that should empower, inspire, and bring meaningfulness to my life have, in the very opposite, been twisted by the government to create barriers for me to reach my full potential of the quality of life that I and all poor people deserve as citizens of this world. This is not the world that we should have to live in. That's why there is a growing movement to decriminalize sex work and address the terrible injustices that sex workers face. I'm a part of that movement, and I hope that our movement is joined by others who are just impacted by poverty and criminalized every day for attempting to survive. If our families had access to the resources that we needed to support ourselves, we could leave prostitution and escape poverty altogether. We are living in the wealthiest country in the world, which has the resources to fund over $700 billion in a, mil- in a military defense budget. I know that together we can fight for those resources to be de- redistributed to help dismantle and abolish poverty for all. I'm really excited that we are able to gather here together and hopefully garner more support um, as we build a movement against poverty in full force. Thank you. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a quick station break. When we return, we will continue our special on caregivers speaking out against poverty. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Mama. Mama, look in yonder tree, see that pretty little sparrow, well, looking back at me. She can soar above the clouds, way up in the sky, she can fly away from here, wild. Daughter, dear daughter, I'll tell you something true. Remember Granny Liza, well, every night she flew. They 
tried to keep her down, but there was nothing they could do. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check us out on our website on sotrueradio.org. If you are on Facebook, you can look for us and like us on Facebook. We're also on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. And today we want to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in that great city of Detroit, Michigan, and internationally. We would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Spain. Now we return to our special on the intersection between caregiving and poverty. During the second half of this hour, you'll hear more from the multiracial panel of mothers and other caregivers who shared their experiences of living in poverty. They participated in a webinar hosted by the National Welfare Rights Union in March of 2021. Let us hear more from them now. This is an anonymous testimony about unhousing. I live in a building that was... That- <coughs> has what's called project-based Section 8 housing units. It's a rent subsidy program where renters pay about a third of our income towards rent and the government makes up the difference. It's a very hard program to get into. Most of the waiting lists for these federally funded programs are long or closed. If I wasn't in this program, I would face homelessness. The market rents in the city where I live are unaffordable for many people, especially low-income people like me. So thousands of people are living on the streets, as there are few rent-subsidized places available. Millions more units are urgently needed to confront the terrible housing crisis. But, like other programs for poor people, there's a lot of onerous paperwork, rules, scrutiny, background checks, and tracking to get in and stay in the program. In the building I live in, most of the residents like me are immigrants. Every year we have to go through laborious processes to renew our rental contracts and other housing requirements. For each process, we're required to fill in forms, produce bank statements for six months, letters, proof of income, pay slips, unemployment benefit, etc. Every piece of income and asset we have are verified and scrutinized. The forms we sign say we're doing so under penalty of perjury. The fear that a simple mistake can cost us our housing makes the process very intimidating. There are rules under which we have to live to get, it, to get this housing help, which require us to give up our right to privacy. For example, I'm required to report to the manager's office if anyone stays in my apartment for more than 15 days or if a family member moves in or out. Also, the property managers check up on how you keep the apartment. Periodically, managers inspect the apartments to get a look at your housekeeping. There's an expectation that your unit will be sprayed for pest control every month, though you can refuse this if you get a doctor's note. I wonder if these practices are established in low-income buildings because poor people are somehow looked at as a public health risk. I had a family member move in last year, and we did the necessary reporting of the family income change that is required. You can face eviction if you don't report right away. 
A mistake was made by the housing manager in the calculation of the additional income. We, we got a threatening letter saying we owed thousands of dollars with a payment schedule attached and a signature was required. We had to challenge the form unless the wording was changed because it was not accurate. The language in the form assumed the money was owed because the mistake was ours, that it was our fault. When we protested, we were told the form was computer generated and couldn't be changed. We persisted and they finally agreed with us. But it was scary because it was our word against the managers who ran the building. There's an additional worry when you live in project-based Section 8 housing because if we did have to move out or would lose the rent, we would lose the rental assistance because it stays with the building. This is different to Section 8 vouchers, which you can take with you to your next place. There's a constant turnover of property managers. I've noticed that anyone who is friendly to the tenants and seems to want to help and be on our side gets removed. It's hard as you develop a relationship with the person and then they are gone. Everyone should be entitled to the right to housing and to the right to freedom from living in fear that you could lose that housing. I've joined with other poor and low-income people to fight for resources and an end to poverty, homelessness, and destitution. My name is Anita Ross. I am originally from Detroit, Michigan, but have lived in New Orleans, Louisiana for the past 10 years. I am a member of the Welfare Rights Organization. I was a single mother and applied for help from welfare and food stamps. But little did I know that you had to give your whole life story about you and your children in order to get some kind of help. It was hard. I went to get a job not paying much and reported it as I was told to. It was just a minimum wage job. Instead of them helping me, they cut me off and I had to struggle just to feed my children. It was many nights that I went hungry just so my kids could eat. I had to work over 40 hours just to pay rent and feed my children. All agencies refused to help me when I tried to work. Welfare does not give you enough to help, so you have to get a job. It is really a struggle trying to live on a little or nothing, struggling from day to day just to make ends meet. This causes you to make decisions on whether to lie or tell the truth in order to survive. You need two minimum wage jobs and Medicaid benefits just to survive. The system is designed for you to fail. And I'm so grateful to be a part of this organization and to help and build to help others as myself. Thank you. Hi, this is Jane Welford. I live in Berkeley now. And thank you for gathering us all together to hear our stories and what we want. Um, in the early 80s, my son was an infant and the relationship I was in turned abusive. So I was getting hit and very sad and angry. Uh, because of aid to families with dependent children, which was still in place then, I was able to leave and find a little house with a leaking roof 
in a village outside of town for $75 a month. And um, AFDC, it was formed in 1935 during the years of the Great Depression. And thank goodness it was still there at that point. Um, I had a huge propane tank that heated the water and ran the stove. I had a, a cooking stove. I, I had a wood-burning stove for heat, and I had to sort of put a barricade around that to protect my young son. And um, I wanted to raise my son. I was happy I was doing it. I knew it was the most important job, but I was also incredibly lonely there. And um, my older sister came to visit. She'd been living in California and she talked me into packing up my old Volkswagen bus with my son and my cat and a few possessions and coming out to California. And um, uh, the the tube that ran the windshield, the defrosting in the windshield that we left in the winter, it had rusted and frozen, <laughs> fallen off. So we had to stop at a motel on the way out to California and, uh, we were able to do that anyway and because uh, we were in the middle of a snowstorm. In any case, I was able to get an increase in money and food stamps as the cost of living was higher than in New Mexico. I was on um, AFDC until my son began kindergarten and I was be able to begin working doing house cleaning while he was at school. <coughs> that way I could take him to school and pick him up afterwards. The Clintons destroyed AFDC in 1996 under the pretense of welfare reform, and that took everything away from women who wanted to raise their children and were in difficult situations, scary situations, and couldn't leave them. I can't begin to imagine the distress that some young women must be in today, having to decide whether or not to stay in a difficult situation so that they can keep raising their child or children on their own. If a woman now wants to get financial help from the government, she has to put her child in daycare and work at some crap job for 30 hours a week, a job that the government gives money to, subsidizes. This work of raising children, which makes life worth living, survival work, which holds communities and society together, is unrecognized and unwaged. The poverty that women suffer raising children on their own is violence. I've joined together with other women to fight back against this injustice and to have this crucial caring work <coughs> be acknowledged and valued and paid. We're campaigning for a living wage for mothers and other caregivers, and we call for a care income for all caring work for people and the planet. It's based on the Green New Deal for Europe. Money for mothers, not for war. Every mother is a working mother. Thank you. Oh, hi. My name is Carolyn Hill. I have five children. Two are deceased. I've been on welfare, which had never been enough to live on. And if you got any increase or any other benefits, they will cut something else. In 1990, I was getting $335 every two weeks for myself and five children while living in Housing Authority House. And welfare benefits haven't increased in Pennsylvania since then. I had to take a job 
paying from $3.35 an hour up to $8 per hour, about five years before the work requirement, which meant I had to leave my preschool age children with my oldest son and couldn't get home until after the older children were out of school. Because I was around, I wasn't around to keep an eye on them, my son got into trouble. My sons, my boys got into trouble, including selling drugs, ending up in ending up spending a couple of years in jail as a result. My daughter used to get home and get the mail before I did, which they were saying she was being absent because Wait, my daughter used to make sure I didn't get, get letters from school about her absence because she got home before me. My granddaughter was suffering from post-trauma due to the loss of her mother and had no one to go to school to go to on class trips with due to that that fact in fact I had to be at these jobs and she started acting out. I've been on disability since 2008. I went on disability because I was injured on the job due to an accident. I, then I became a kinship carer for my nieces and nephews. All agreed the children were doing well with me, but the child welfare department decided I was too poor and didn't have a GED. So they took the kids from from me without warning, and I gave them, I gave them a dis and gave them to a distant family member with more money. I fought back on my own and then got together with the other, at with others at the Crossroads Women's Center, where the Global Women's Strike in Philadelphia is based. We fought back together. We protest, we lobbied, we wrote letters. We fought all the way up to the Superior Court, but social workers lied on me and my lawyer did not fight for me like he should have. We lost the case. I haven't seen my nieces since 2013. I've been doing caregiving work all my life. I cared for my grandmother, later for my mom, my brother and other people's children. I had neighbors I cooked for, I went to the store for. I wasn't paying no money for none of these things. This work that I did for people, this is work I did for people. Now I'm with the Poor People's Campaign as, as part of Women of Color in the Global's Women's Strike. We are fighting for money and other resources for mothers and others, unpaid and low paid caregivers and for a permanent child benefit to be paid directly to caregivers like me. I have done both unpaid and low paid work. I know that we are all workers. We are all urgent, uh, ur urgently need of $15 an hour at the very least, including those of us doing unpaid caregiving work. Money can be found for war and weapon, but not for low-income women like me. I always remember Reverend Liz saying, when you lift from the bottom, 
Everyone rise, and I am so glad to be a part of the movement here in Pennsylvania. I had three instances that caused me to need and be denied benefits. The first was death, which was um, my husband before the age of 40, and me being the sole responsibility of our three young children. Um, there was a problem with identifying his body because of the accidents. There was um, denial of benefits because they were showing that um, I had the adequate income. And um, when I explained that his income was part of what kept us going, um, I was. it was suggested that maybe I could move to a cheaper place uh, buy less expensive food and, you know, just move into a neighborhood that was more conducive to my income at the time. Um, it reminded me of Claudine, which I tried to watch the other night and I actually started crying because it was like that. I was trying to work and take care of my children and there was somebody telling me how I should do it so I wouldn't have to get any help or money from them. The second um, occasion was cancer. I developed or had thyroid cancer and um, was treated for that. When I lost my job that had the insurance, I was given, I think it's called Medi-Cal. I didn't know not only who, because I'd always had insurance anyway, it was difficult because if you found somebody that took Medicaid, you still had to pay, it was an 80-20 payment, like they would pay 80%. And some procedures cost hundreds of dollars and lab tests and all of that. So I didn't have that 20%. Um, a lady from Syria who started a program called Access helped me to um, go to a clinic that only charged me the 80%. So whatever they were paying, that's what they were billing. So that was my um, second incident with that. So of course I applied for food stamps and um, I can honestly say that this was about four years ago and I was granted $15 a month. And since that time, it is now 19. So I have moved up in the world. And the third was just trying to have um, benefits to help because I, oh, the third thing was age. You know, it was like, I'm at the age where I can get around, but I could get around better if I had access and a lot of other things. So I think that in being denied benefits or welfare or given the rights that I should have been afforded, it made me committed to not only finding out what was available and how to go about getting it, but committing myself to helping other people become aware of what could be done. And I became a commissioner. Uh, I chaired a commission for human rights for the city of Santa Ana. 
um, and represented the state on the community actions, um, community association of human rights organizations. And my whole wanting to say thank you for today is because I am determined that if anybody's going through what I've been through, I want to be able to provide some information, some uplifting or something that can just help somebody. And I thank the um, National Human Rights, um, Welfare Rights, Global Women's Strike, and all that know that we're in this to make a difference by being the difference. Thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Teresa Muldrow. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In 1995, I was a mother of three sons, aged 6, 10, and 13, and had a full-time paid job. My husband and I were separated. I became seriously ill, was hospitalized. My medical bills were over $100,000. I left my job and applied for medical assistance, food stamps, and Social Security disability for me and my children. Whenever my health permitted, I worked part-time, and with my SSD payments, we were then ineligible for food stamps. I was often too ill to work, so my income was quite unstable. Also, in the following four years, we had to move four times to three different counties to escape domestic abuse. My kids changed schools three times. I was again hospitalized numerous times. Social services started investigating the boys' welfare. Anytime I was able, I found part-time jobs. I constantly had to calculate work hours, wages, and raises to stay within SSD limit, income limits. Once, it, a Christmas bonus put me $3 over the limit. I lost all my payments and SSD eligibility and had to be recertified. Because of all the moves and illness, I frequently had to change jobs and reapply for benefits. This was exhausting. When my oldest son obtained his first legitimate job at 15, his wages were counted in our family income. Our food stamps were cut and our medical assistance threatened. After my two oldest turned 18 and their social security payments ended, I could no longer afford rent. I had to agree for my youngest son to stay with his dad. I was working part-time and homeless. I feared for the welfare of my sons. I moved in with my parents who were in failing health. Their medical assistance, law heap, and energy assistance was endangered because the state wanted to include my income in their household income. I had to move out. When my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I was able to become a paid home health care worker for him. I quit my job to care for my parents. But when my father was enrolled in adult daycare, my paid care hours were reduced to three hours per day. After my parents died, I found out that the state was planning to take their home through the home waiver program. My parents had never said anything about this to me. In fact, they had left their house to me and my kids in their wills. However, the state could not prove that they had ever signed the waiver. And with legal help, I was given the title to the house. I lived there for over two years until I too became disabled to take, I became too disabled to tear for a large house. I applied for low income senior housing, but was told I would not qualify if I owned a house in the two years prior to my application. I had to legally transfer the title to my son and wait two more years until I was able to qualify for 
subsidize senior housing where I live today. My story is not unique, nor is it anywhere near the worst for people who receive government benefits. It is only an example of how people can fall into poverty and are constantly held down in it by eligibility restrictions and requirements that make an increase or addition in one form of aid reduce or eliminate another. This is merely a brief outline of my story. All throughout our struggle with governmental systems, we encounter blatant systemic isms, racism, sexism, ableism, ageism, and great disparities from county to county, zip code to zip code. I believe that every mother wants to raise their children in a safe living environment where they can be happy, healthy, resourceful, and confident of a positive future. That is why I have become an advocate and work with the women of color in the Global Women's Strike and the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, to get the hard work of caregiving acknowledged and rewarded. All people need to feel that doing your best is good enough and your life and the lives of all others are to be valued, respected, and protected. We should not be made to feel that being poor makes us bad or lazy or immoral. Being poor should not doom us. Being poor is not a crime, but being held captive in poverty is a societal crime. Thank you. We're out of time. I'd like to thank all of the speakers featured in today's show, and I'd like to thank the board of the National Welfare Rights Union for allowing us to share their audio with you. I'd also like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Romero Funes, our assistant producer, and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoTrueRadio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all, please stay safe. Tried to keep it down, but there